Well, hello to the Tim Masso podcast audience out in the World Wide Web. I am here today with men of many talents and many interests. Drew Koblitz, welcome back to the show. Hey, Tim. It's good to be back. Okay, so we profiled you, your watch collection, and your car collection over on Watchbox Studios last summer. Much has changed. Uh, it's a watch podcast, so what's changed on the wrist since then? Uh, let's see. So I think actually it's funny back when uh, back when we did that was before they they released the OPs, the the colored OPs. Um, and I said that I thought that was going to be one of the more you know fun things that they did, and that I was definitely going to hunt out a green one. I did end up getting the the green uh, forty one OP, which I I love. I wear that all the time. I just I like the funky colors, and you know, looking to where we are today, you know, they were orderable. It was totally something that was you know that was. Uh, that was manageable and now apparently they're they're totally out so i'm glad i, I jumped on that one kind of early um i did end up buying the new uh omega uh, uh speedmaster uh, which i have been a huge fan of I, I went for the sapphire dial this time um i had a hesolite of the previous gen and it was cool but the sapphire of this gen um it just has an extra special factor and you know i, I wasn't really a huge speedmaster person but the little nuances to this one in particular the dial um the, the, the dial contouring and, you know, the, the sunken, um, uh, you know, chrono um, plots are, are really, really cool to me. Uh, so I've loved that watch. Um, since then, uh, I also picked up the, uh, the, the ADLC Cartier Santos, uh, which I just thought was, I, I, I got to try one on and just, I love that. It's a really cool style. I, it it kind of hits me in the all black watch thing. And uh, I mean, those are, those were, were kind of the main ones, aside from a, 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 an RM that I will have coming in now um, within the next couple months. And when that comes, I'll have to come back and, and show that to you because I think that'll be pretty impressive. Can you give us a coming attraction? Which model you chose? I think I uh, it's. Uh, I mean, it's their their uh, uh, their their first you know fully in-house chrono flyback chrono movement, which at this point should say pretty much what that one is and it is their their new model for this year so i'm incredibly um excited for that and i mean i that to go along with the 6702 that i have those are kind of the the two watches that to me are, are why i love you know our um you know rm and they've been they've been you know really exceptional uh exceptional to to, to work with and to do events with so I know for our audience who may not have seen our feature on Watchbox Studios last year, we talked about the experience that comes with buying some luxury watches. And while there's often a lot of skepticism about RM on the product side, the experience that goes with it, I think I think that was when you described it, the first time I sort of got the brand. So that's definitely important. Yeah. And you know, it, it is it's it's something that is not um it's not, you know, it's not a universal um there are a ton of people that are absolutely right in saying that there are there are many aspects that it, you know the, the money doesn't seem like it's worth it. But you know, coming from motorsports, uh, you know, love of motorsports, and and when you have to come up with things that you know are interesting, unique, and and some of the production methods that are required there, when you basically have to pay for them to do that, um, you know, with every single new small screw piece, I mean everything has to get retooled or new tools have to be done for that. And it's kind of one of those companies that says, all right, if you want us to keep doing this really cool, wild, you know, interesting stuff, part of, part of that thing is they, they, you know, they need the R and D paid for. And the, the customer does do that a little bit. And, you know, for them, I mean, that's, that's a, it's a 4,000, you know, watch a year company. 
and with any other independent. I mean, when you look at the price of of you know some of the other independents that do stuff that that is kind of as maybe not as interesting because it depends on what you're interested in, but um, that's as innovative. Uh, they almost all of them make the customer bear the cost. Um, but you know, the, the cool thing is really with with and quite a few of the independents do it. But with RM and for me, I mean, like, like I said then. Um, the events, which unfortunately, you know, this past year, we haven't gotten to do anything of, um, but, you know, looking forward, I, I could not be more excited to do stuff, um, you know, with, with, with them. Did you feel like the Ferrari partnership was a logical extension? Yeah. And I'm actually not really a Ferrari guy um, in, in many ways. However, I love the, I love that they are taking this on. Um, they're taking this on kind of full force instead of just, um, just being driver-based. And while I actually think being driver-based is a good call overall, it's very interesting to have them say, we are, you know, we are with Ferrari and Ferrari is with us. And I am looking forward to that more um, actually. So, you know, the events that they end up doing, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll really enjoy going to those. And I did things with, you know, with RM and, 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 um, uh, and McLaren but it does seem like both the companies are really jumping onto a new, you know, a, a new major partnership here. So I'm, I'm really excited for them to, uh, to do that and to actually go to some of the races uh, again, especially after uh, you know, a year of not traveling. And for the audience, there've been a string of Ferrari branded watches through the years, Longines once upon a time, Cartier Ferrari during the eighties, Gerard Perigo in the 1990s, early two thousands, the Panerai thing that no one loved in the two thousands. Uh, and then, of course, Hublot in the 2010s. But I think RM is the first time there's a watch that's really a, a status peer that is yeah. pairing up with Ferrari. I think it's a good match. And I'm not a Ferrari or an RM guy. Yeah, and it's 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 going to be interesting. And you know, I think it'll it'll also kind of open up the brand to. Um, I mean, believe it or not, some even different people that have been you know more in the car world that at this point you know where they may have before said, oh, you know, it's not it's not my thing. I don't need to be there. It'll be really cool to see the reception of it, um, you know, at these events and and with a, a slightly slightly different audience. I mean, you know, same love overall, but a little bit different. It'll be cool. Yeah. So that's a good segue since we're talking about cars right now because I can speak about the luxury market from the watch side and what I've seen in the last year, really in the last six months, and I think you could see the same thing on the car and the watch side. But what the hell is happening in the market for luxuries right now? You've been a consultant in alternative assets. What on earth is going on with pricing? Um, I, about as classic supply and demand as you'll ever have it. But what's kind of interesting is, um, you know, luxury goods in general obviously have gone up because people haven't been, and you've heard it all over the place now, this isn't novel. People haven't been traveling. Um, many people that have been in, in the traditional markets, assuming that they've had even a reasonable uh, you know, portfolio have, have done, you know, have done, have been very fortunate throughout this, you know, throughout this time. And, uh, and I think you have quite a few people and a, 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 quite a few people have reached out to me to diversify where their money is. And, and just, it's a mixture of wanting to have a little bit of fun with it, but then also really want hard assets. So the, the hard asset space has been, I mean, beyond incredible, um, and, and watch wise, I mean, we've seen that with these kind of ever rising, um, you know, prices for, for things that I would, I would never have guessed, even having been involved in watches for, you know, well, well over 10 plus years. Um, the car thing that's going on right now, however, is really interesting. And it, it's basically a mad dash for some of the last of 
um, analog and, and driving experience cars, because now we basically know that, you know, save maybe a couple nuances. I mean, we're going electric at the end of the day and whether the end of the day is, you know, is, is, is 10 years, is 30 years, is even 40 years, the cars that are going to come along in between are not the same level of engagement as these cars that have kind of existed. And many of these cars, you know, a lot of the older Porsche GT cars, air-cooled cars, um, Ferraris have had, you know, plenty of special Scuderia, Speciale, uh, um, Challenge Stradale, you know, even 355 manual cars. There are only so many and there are only so many in good condition. And now with the, you know, the general rise in market um, of the market, uh, you know, uh, of traditional markets, people are now saying, well, you know, I want a forever car. I want my car that in 10 years and 15 years is the same car or is a car that I will be good with and, and enjoy driving. So what's happened is people have started grabbing anything that's available within, um, within these, these realms. So, I mean, I've watched, you know, 997.2 GT3 RSs from 2010 and 11 and, uh, you know, the 3.8 liter go from earlier this year, 100 and maybe 130 to 149,000 ish, you know, range. And a, and a 149 car was a perfect car. And that exact car, any of those, like a, you know, I, I, I picked one up as well. Um, that car today, I mean, a, a 1700 mile, one owner, you know, one car, your, your perfect thing. I mean, that car is a 250,000, you know, or more dollar car. And this literally happened within from March to basically to March to March, you know, and, and now it's just almost all of them are sold out. I mean, they're, they're, if you, if you go and look, um, you know, Chrono 24 has basically any watch that you ever want is always there with these cars. You, you go to autotradercars.com, Hemmings, any of these places, there aren't cars. And if there's a car that's up there and it's been sitting there, sitting there because it's got a story. And so we've never hit that before. Um, and, and that's been driving markets absolutely crazy. But for, I think, a, a, a good reason, and it'll be interesting because in the next question, and I think, you know, this is something that always comes up is how long is this going to last? Yes. And while the watch market, the watches, many of the watches that are hot now um, are still in production. So a lot of those watches, they won't go down a lot, but it'll probably breathe a little bit. I, I absolutely expect a, a little bit of a breath, but with these cars, there's, there's no breathing when these things aren't in the market at all and they just don't exist and none are, are being made. They can't be. Um, so I, I'm actually, it's, it's going to be pretty interesting to watch kind of where those, you know, where those go. And I like that you mentioned that there's probably a difference between the rise in car prices and the rise in watch prices. Cause I've, I've noted watches like the 5711, once that becomes a hundred thousand dollar watch, I really do feel like we're in the heat of the moment and, you yeah. know, 18 months, 24 months down the line, that could be a 65, $75,000 watch or even a $60,000 watch. It'll never be worth just retail, but it, it might not be worth six figures for much longer. You seem to think that the car movement has legs. Is that just because the design, the character, the experience of an old school analog car is getting scarcer? Yeah. You know, um, I, I've driven most of the new, uh, most of the new sports cars and supercars that are out. And I, I I'm constantly impressed with technology and I, I really do embrace it for, um, for, for transportation and actually for, for kind of daily driver transportation, the new technology is beyond incredible. A, a Taycan Turbo S is one of the fastest cars that you can ever drive for the most part, instant torque, instant everything. And I mean, that, that part's great, but when you want to go and take a sports car out on a drive, 
um, you know, I, 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 I had a, a 992 uh, Turbo S, you know, brand new car, incredibly fast car. I'm one of the fastest cars zero to 60 I've, I've ever had. And while that car is absolutely impressive in so many ways, the involvement factor just isn't there in the way that, you know, even a, a 97 C2S, you know, Carrera air-cooled car, um, it's just, it's just not there in the same way. And then, you know, at that point I view, uh, I view values and, and worth very differently because then you're just paying a, you're paying an awful lot of money for, you know, a car that transports you versus a car that when you're in, you're experiencing, really experiencing that, you know, that transport, you know, kind of aspect. And, and the cars that provide that, because I mean, I, the, the, the company that I'm, you know, and I, I, that I think actually still has a little inkling of that. And I, you know, who knows where it's going to go um, it, it is actually Lamborghini because I mean, they're one of the only companies now putting out a NA V10 um, pretty rowdy car. And I mean, they, obviously they, they do their, well, what it's going away this year. Um, but the, the naturally aspirated V12 of the Aventador uh, the S, you know, and the SVJ um, but the, those kind of cars still have a little bit of that, you know, you get in and you're like, Ooh, this is actually, um, this is an occasion driving. Um, but short of something like, you know, like that, and maybe a, maybe a Ferrari F, uh, excuse me, uh, 812, I mean, the new cars just don't have that. They don't have that kind of pop. And, you know, that's going to keep the older ones absolutely beyond strong. We'll circle back to the cars and the watches in a second, but I want to talk specifically about something else, different asset classes. Obviously, a lot of people with with wherewithal are sitting at home bored looking for ways to entertain themselves. Um, but, you know, in the past, that would mean that your portfolio is doing well, your investment mix is doing well, maybe real estate has been good to you. This is a different era now. Are you seeing any connection between the demand for luxuries and the success of cryptocurrencies and the people who hold them? So as of as of right now, and that literally means immediately now, not as much because a lot of the people that have been buying um, have been buying uh, that I know that have been doing crypto already had quite a lot of money beforehand. So they were they were getting into you know in the new market and they were already purchasing these cars. However, I absolutely think that when we're looking at cars that will be of the kind of more modern era that will be more desirable down the line. Um, I actually think that is absolutely something that will happen in some of the younger generation that's taken up, um, you know, interest and in, in been, been uh, trading in crypto. They will be going for um, different brands than I think the and I think the past, uh, you know, the, the past collectors have. So I think gauging where they're going is um, is definitely important for the stuff that I'm doing um, in, in the future. And it's also fun and interesting. And I mean, there are payments in crypto that are being done now for, uh, for car dealers. There are plenty of them that are, you know, that are, that are, um, that have been done, which is absolutely you know, amazingly cool. I mean, it's, a, you know, this year is the first year that I, I've heard people say, you know, well, I had a, you know, I had a three series and now I have a seven series or, you know, a, a, you know, I had a boxer in crypto and now I have a, you know, a 911 turbo and they've had the same amount of crypto. And it, it really, has been amazing watching that watching that phenomena, you know, kind of take up, but I, I am not knowledgeable in it directly. So I, I will, I will leave that to, to the professionals there. That's fair enough. And that's, that's a, that's a good point. Um, now I spoke to James Thompson about a week ago, he runs Black Badger, you know him for many elaborately loomed watches. 
And he talked about an aspect of the luxury watch business that really hasn't been getting a lot of attention, which is that aside from some marquee brands, really strong brands at the moment, a huge range of companies are struggling to sell watches at retail price. Their products are resale challenged when they come up used. And you know, you look at companies like Parmigiani, Chagere Lecoult, Alango Unzona. Uh, you look at companies uh, even like Vacheron and its dress watch lines as opposed to the overseas. And those are not red hot right now. And when they sell used, they sell for less. Uh, you had a McLaren and you mentioned to me that unlike you know, for example, your Carrera GT, uh, Lambos, some of the Porsches you've owned, and the Ferrari, uh, the McLaren did lose a lot of value. And McLaren as a company really hurt last year. What's separating the successful brands from the weak ones in luxury? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it does bring back to, to supply and demand. Um, McLaren had been releasing quite a few cars as well. Uh, and, you know, it was a, they, they released kind of many cars in succession. And that's always something that can be interesting on a brand. Um, also, I mean, they, they just, it's just a car that, you know, especially until people um, know they have easy service for, there are, um, you know, there are plenty of, of uh, not, not rumors, but, you know, stories of people that have had, you know, unreliable cars. And, you know, that always will, will be a little bit of a thorn in the side of a company until they figure out, um, you know, really good infrastructure to kind of take care of that. Both of my McLarens actually ran absolutely perfectly with no check engine lights, no anything. I never had a problem with it, but it was also probably because I drove the heck out of both of them. And I, I think that, you know, that that aspect probably helped it. Um, but otherwise, you know, really thinking of cars uh, that that are, you know, successful in, in, in value. And truth be told, if you really think about it, Porsche has been the uh, single best of all of that, you know, save a few models in each, uh, in each various lineup. And, you know, I think their success is, is down to, um, I don't know, you know, that's just one of the most well-rounded dri actual driver's cars. And while the markets have gone up for these certain, you know, very collectible cars that sit in people's kind of garages, as far as like, you know, cars that have miles and are usable, um, you know, Porsches have been, you know, been great for that. So, you know, while you have some of these cars that if they get 10,000 miles, you say, hell no, a Porsche with 10,000 miles makes almost no difference. In fact, I mean, if it's a 10,000 mile car from 97, the car ends up being worth, you know, at least 40% more just based off of that alone. So you, you kind of got this thing where, you know, use, um, use is not a bad thing for the Porsche brand, whereas in other ones, historically, it kind of, you know, kind of has been. Although with COVID, We've seen, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of supply chains get uh, get kinked, and a lot of that um, incoming car flow has slow has has uh, slowed down. So as a result of that, actually, use McLaren values, uh, use Lamborghini, actually new Lamborghini, um, Range Rover or Land Rover, everything has kind of propped back up, um, at least until they start getting that flow back. So hopefully, some of these companies will learn that there is a little bit of a benefit to keeping things um, a little a little bit tighter at times. And, and it is a very fascinating situation we're in because you mentioned Porsche and Porsche is a mass market. I mean, Porsche makes a lot of cars a year. Porsche, am I correct to say they probably make over 100,000 now with the SUVs? Oh, yeah. And, you know, Brandon in my office, he had he had a McCann and he had the car for a few months. He sold it back to Porsche for $2,000 less than he paid. 
And that's a mass produced SUV. And I just wonder how can a brand be that strong? Then I look at Rolex and they're making a million watches a year and whose brand yep. is stronger. I mean, there are parallels there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's still amazing to me. I mean, you know, that Rolex puts out as many watches as they do. And I, I'm, a, I'm a big Rolex fan and at the end of the day, just because, I mean, if there's something that, you know, they're going to wear, uh, Rolex makes an awesome thing for it. And you can, you know, everyone can kind of, yeah, there isn't, there isn't an activity that you can't wear, you know, a, a Rolex for. So, I mean, I, there's absolutely a lot of, um, there's a reason behind, you know, the want there, but the fact that they make so many of these watches and I mean, for any sub that comes out dealer, you're, you're looking at, you know, what has to be 50 people, you know, minimum at each dealer that are that, you know, that want it. And that, even when they start producing more watches, I, it'll be interesting to see just how much it breathes or even if it does, you know, now, another interesting topic that has come up because we spoke about it before the interview, but we were talking about Les Artisans de Genève and the work they do on custom, hugely modern, hugely modded modern day Rolexes. Now, Singer has spawned a million imitators and they're not all doing Porsche. Some are doing Mercedes, some are doing, you know, old muscle cars. Some of them are doing Land Rovers and, you know, I think there's a lot of interest in rest, resto mods today. It's no longer a four-letter word. Are we going to see like an embrace of that sort of thing in the luxury watch world? Because right now, you put $100,000 worth of diamonds on your Patek Philippe and no one wants it. Yeah. I mean, it's got like a bad name, but Les Artisans does a different kind of thing. It's not just blinged out, but it's heavily modified. Are we going to see this in watches and see it accepted? Uh, I mean, by the companies that do it very well, I, I think absolutely. Um, it'll be more interesting if smaller shops come and offer these services and seeing if they, if stuff that they have done kind of holds up. However, I, I'm, I, I actually, given companies like, uh, you know, LA Watchworks, um, you know, when someone has a, they want to do something to the case or they want to, um, you know, they want to kind of modify things, even if it's just polishing or, you know, different things than, than the way that Rolex did from the factory. I've seen some of them sell for literally all the money that, that that's been put into it. So I think for certain watches and certain certain um, you know pieces that will absolutely be the case. Um, otherwise, kind of like Singer, I think the companies that don't do a product as well and kind of just have done it just on uh, on business instead of necessarily concentrating on every single detail. I'm not sure what those will fall, but you know, especially as a you know platinum Daytona has hit hundred thousand dollars and you know what 120 something for a you know for a baguette model i mean now we you are in the pricing of a of a you know artisan engineer and in all honesty i would prefer the artisan all day every day uh, i think being able to exercise creativity is is one of the more interesting things with the potential with companies like that and i actually do think and i mean i, I know that plenty of the bigger companies are, will be more willing to take on these kind of smaller projects with their customers who, you know, have, have shown them support for quite some time. And, and that I think is, is something that's a, almost an ultimate goal, um, at least of mine and, and many, maybe other collectors to get to the point where um, you have a, a company that's willing to do a collaboration with you on that. And depending on how the collaboration is, I mean, I, I could absolutely see it being, I mean, it could, you know, be worth actually quite a lot. It could be you know, no matter what, it's going to be worth a lot to you because you put that in it. So, you know, losing money on a watch that you've just bought and it's just, you know, you've had, maybe you don't like is one thing, but losing money on something that you've loved, enjoyed, that you were part of the design of, I mean, that's a absolutely different, you know, different thing to me. And, and that's also why, you know, people enjoy 
certain cars. And for me, I mean, that was, you know, McLaren, it was the, it was really the, you know, specking my own and, and driving the hell out of it, which made it so good. So at the end of the day, it was just kind of a cost that's assumed in doing something, you know, like that. Um, so hopefully that, that, that translates into the, into the watch world too, because I, I love that creativity. And I think I, I could see more progressive brands that maybe have a little bit of a sense of irreverence and maybe more of a newness to them, embracing a relationship with a company like Les Artisans that does really high-end custom work. I think we've seen the industry take baby steps toward that with the LVMH partnership with, you know, Bamford Watch Department. You know, those are, for the most part, factory-warranted mass-produced watches, but the fact that they do have a second set of eyes on the design is maybe a baby step towards something like, I don't know, a Moser or a Bulgari at some point saying, Look, if you're going to put a hundred thousand dollars worth of work into one of our watches and it's not just diamonds we might be interested in doing that on a limited run with a partnership yeah i think that's great and i, I give george bamford so much credit he is such a, a a talented and visionary individual and i i i had the pleasure of speaking with him a few times on the, on clubhouse and um it, it's very interesting to see kind of the direction of 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 his company in particular i mean you know following it from you know, Rolex to, uh, to, you know, to Zenith and, and Tang Hauer. And now they, you know, they, they, and his own products now that he's doing, um, it, it's really, really, it's really amazing. And I also think with the watch world, as more people get to know these kind of guys, um, the, the potential for very interesting partnerships are, are there, there's so much, so much fun stuff in the future. And unlike cars where, you know, we kind of do have an idea of where they're going, um, the watch collecting world, I mean, the, the, there's, you know, there's, there's space available. There's the universe still available to, you know, um, to kind of branch into. And I'm, I'm excited to see where, where, where guys like George, uh, you know, take that. Uh, George, yourself, myself, you know, we're all fairly young guys and we know what we like. And we're all drawn to cars, watches, you know, various luxury classes that, 10 years ago, were propelled almost entirely by baby boomer money. Are you seeing a generational turnover, if not to millennials, at least to Gen X as the prime movers of the luxury market? Yeah. Um, what, what's really made the biggest difference, though, I think, is the media consumption of the younger generations. And that media consumption and constant, um, I mean, kind of influencing, so to speak, has, has and still influences, believe it or not, even some of the boomers who they see this thing and they're like, oh, wait, this is what the, you know, this group is really interested in. Oh, you know what? Let me look at that. I wasn't thinking about that. Um, and then they end up getting interested in it. So, you know, at the end of the day, um, between, you know, between the, the, the boomer money and then the generational wealth transfers that are happening now, um, I mean, I think you're basically seeing everyone that has any interest in resource, um, you know, with it getting, getting pretty heavily involved. It'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years as people start traveling again, you know, business expenses go up, uh, you know, time goes down, so to speak, you know, what happens there. But, um, you know, the, given that we kind of just set this precedent for, for working at home uh, for, you know, for many companies, it will be interesting because, you know, unlike when, you know, people were at and, and you know, the Gen Xers and, and millennials are, you know, at offices, now they're at home and, you know, when they're not you know, looking at this one thing, you know what, maybe they are looking at the watch, you know, watch forums or, or kind of, you know, any of the other media influence. So I, I wouldn't be surprised that you start seeing um, if that spending doesn't stop. I mean, it, it, it won't, it'll maybe it slow up a little bit, but it's definitely not going to stop. It'll, it will be interesting to see. So 
in terms of generational turnover, there's also generational preference. And I think it's always kind of assumed that the first collector cars were Model A's, Model T's, you know, interwar, mm -hmm. Auburn, Cord, Duesenberg, those kind of cars, depending on where the collector was buying, what level of budget he had. Um, but as the baby boomers became the driving force in the collector car market, they were looking for cars from the 60s and the 70s and some of the older ones from the late 50s. It seems like all generations right now combined want pretty much the same watches, but different generations drive different cars. Like no boomer is bidding a 2000 mile A80 twin turbo Supra up to hundred grand. Could you talk about the generational turnover and what kind of collector cars are on the rise? Uh, you know, what's actually interesting with that is if there's a car that exists that pro provides a fun driving experience, that has become fair game to basically everyone. I mean, I, I know, for instance, the Integra R market uh, has shot up, uh, actually percentage-wise, it may, it may be one of the bigger percentage-wise, uh, you know, um, um, increases. And at the last Integra R that I saw a friend of mine sell was, my friend uh, is 40 years old with the car, actually has three of them or had three of them. And the gentleman that bought his car was 66 years old, 67 years old. So, I mean, it's just one of these, at this point, at least within the car world, any of the cars that provide that kind of analog or interesting um, experience, everyone's going for. And in this case, as the prices are, are getting higher for this stuff, you're actually seeing, um, I mean, you're seeing people that have the, you know, have the money to spend on it. And, and a lot of the, there are quite a few boomers who are still incredibly interested in, in having a lot of these cars. And if anything, you know, it's something that, you know, they can afford it now. And then they're looking at, you know, whatever happens later, you know, they don't know, but they know the cars will be solid. So at this point, it's almost like a new game that, you know, when some of these guys have retired, they've said, this is actually, this is a lot of fun. Like I can do my own, you know, my own collecting thing. Um, and then, you know, there are definitely the younger generations have, have been spending more money than they would have on, on certain of these cars because they may not get another shot at them. Uh, and that I've definitely noticed people uh, not necessarily stretching, but saying, okay, I can buy, you know, I can re re up my lease for a BMW M3 for the next, you know, however many years, and that's fine. Or I can drive a, you know, I can drive a, you know, this, this other car, it'll be a normal car, but then I'm going to buy a GT3. And that GT3, I'm going to have for, I'm going to have for years. And that's just going to be my, you know, my thing. I've seen quite a few people doing that. And it's really, it's really awesome to see it because, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's real, real commitment to, you know, to the car collecting uh, world. And especially realizing that there may not be very much longer to be able to do, you know, buy some of these cars at, at numbers that even though we may consider them expensive today, they could be very inexpensive to what they could be in 10 years. So. That's a good point. And, you know, maybe it is when I say that every, every single generation seems to want the same watches all at the same time. There is, as you mentioned, more, um, and I'm going to call it surprising crossover between age and era, age of buyer and era of car. Because if you're seeing 60 year olds interested in Integra GSRs from the 90s, uh, you know, I'm also seeing a lot of people our age who are going out and when they have the means buying you know, 60s and early 70s Porsche 911s that were not part of their childhood experience. So maybe it's just the fact that these days, every era of car can be experienced simultaneously online. Whereas my grandpa's generation would have only grown up with Stutz Bearcats and Model A's and, you know, 
my dad's generation would only have grown up with stingrays and you know Mopar B bodies and Mustang 289 hypos and the people basically wanted what they were able to experience because there was no internet and they could only experience the era in which they live. Now yeah. we got people our age going back and trying to buy you know two liter 911s that were made 20 years before they were born. Yeah, and you know the other thing that, that's happening is you're getting more people that are in collectors that are buying cars to use for specific events, and um, there are quite a few people that that do um, you know that have done uh, there are many European events, there are you know American events like the Colorado brand, and uh, you know Europe obviously has the new Emilia, and, and then you have things like um, you know the two liter uh, the two liter cup from Porsche, not from Porsche, but with you know with Porsches and. You know, people are now buying these cars to then experience them with other people and other owners instead of just the, you know, it's just, um, you know, for self and, and for those kind of, you know, those kind of roads. So I have been seeing people buy cars specifically for, you know, for these kind of things, which is, you know, really amazing and fun and, and kind of goes back to the experiential aspect that, um, you know, cars can provide and, you know, companies like RM try to combine into their, you know, into their watches. And, and I, I love that. That's a good point. If you want to ride in a lot of vintage road rallies around the country today, you know, an Integra GSR is not going to get it done. <laughs> so, you know, no, so let's talk a little bit about watches and wonders because we're about halfway through the first all virtual debut season of new watches in Switzerland. Uh, have you seen anything that impressed you by the same token? Has anything disappointed you? Uh, impressed uh, off the bat, my, my, my favorite introduction uh, that, that I've seen thus far is a is a toss-up and i really can't, i won't put one ahead of the other because they're very different kind of class of watches but the one that i think surprised me the most was the the new hermes um hoa i think that is absolutely awesome the the dial um the dial is gorgeous i, I love the turning the eights kind of on their side to you know kind of be this infinity thing i like the multi-material case um titanium dlc um, then they have one that is, um, that's graphene, uh, which is, was, I think up until now, I want to say one of the only other companies that's used that has been RM, which is a pretty amazing thing to have Hermes out of left field come out with, you know, with this. And they've made this watch that's, you know, 39, 39 millimeter basically, but, you know, cushion. And, uh, I think that's gorgeous. And their pricing is rather reasonable, 50 I think it's 5,500 for their base model. And then the graphene all black version is, you know, is 8,900. But any other company that would do any of those watches would probably charge a minimum fifteen dollars to $20,000 for material like that. I would, I would at least think. So I, I love that. Um, I'm going to be actually getting to, I'll check one out uh, on Saturday. Uh, I'll be able to get hands-on on that, which I'm really excited to, to see. And the other one that has just absolutely blows me away, I love it. I think they'll sell out of them uh, is the Vacheron uh, Open Work Perpetual Ultra Thin. That to me is the, if, if don't focus on the stuff that you're, you're going to be able to get at a certain point, that is, that is an absolute, you know, tete-a-tete to, to Audemars um, with their Open Work, you know, and for their, their Open Work pieces, they want, you know, what's the, forget retail. I mean, even market value is, you know, well over a hundred something for even the basic open work. Uh, and this, you can have an open work, excuse me, an open work perpetual that's, and it's thin. I mean, it's this absolute perfect thing for, I think it's 125,000, which is an awful lot of money, but in any other company, I mean, even 
not any other company, they are an expensive company, but even that for them doesn't seem as expensive as it could be. Whereas I think the other ultra thin they came out with was, was 88,000. Um, oh, and also that's white gold, not even steel. So, you know, where the Audemars is, is, you know, a 40 some thousand dollar, you know, steel open work watch, if it's a steel one and the gold one is, I don't recall the price, but somewhere, somewhere in the nineties, I think something like that. Um, it does provide almost a, a value within that watch world. And I, I won't, you know, it's definitely extremely expensive, but uh, those two really caught my eye. Um, um, Patek wise, I mean, knew what they were really going to do with that. I'm not, I'm not incredibly thrilled with um, that, with the 5711 anyways. Uh, ironically, the one that I think is actually kind of cool is the one with the diamonds on it. And I'm not a diamond guy, but that is kind of the, when, when all these, you know, when a 5711 is $100,000, if it's going to be $100,000, there better be a reason why, at least materially, it has that kind of thing. And, you know, the gold 5711R, uh, it is gorgeous. That one, I, you know, I, I, I think is very nice. But that one with the diamond, the baguettes for the bezel, I actually do think that's kind of interesting. Would I buy it even at, you know, if, if it was offered to me? Um, I mean, I'm not sure. It's not, it's not hyper exciting. But, you know, the green dial 5711 is cool, but it's, it's a nice sport watch. It's really that's really where that falls to me. Um, but tech wise, I'm kind of wed to uh, 5712 is still my favorite that they've kind of ever done, and and uh, it's hard to get me to to go away from that. Um, what else was interesting? I, Rolex. I mean, you know, everyone was excited for that, and I, I actually I actually enjoyed the Rolex release because this may have been one of the first times that that to me they were just kind of like you know we already have a ton of demand. Uh, we'll give you a couple things, but like we can't fill can't fill any of the orders for the most part, or we can't fill any of the demand by any means. So they did some fun stuff. The meteorite thing, I think is awesome. I just think it's fun and cool. Um, I, I do I, I do like the, uh, the the rose gold on meteorite and the yellow gold meteorite uh, full bracelet. I, I think that's gorgeous. I think it's cool. It'd be a very different kind of tux watch. Um, I think that's, that's fun. As far as the Explorer going to 36, I think that's great. It's not necessarily, it's never really been my watch, but it, uh, it, just mainly on, on the aspect of, um, I, I, of, of the Explorer Milgauss kind of style, I, I do kind of prefer the dial colors from the Milgauss, but the Explorer um, being done in two-tone, I actually like two-tone. I may be one of the few people that likes it, but I like this kind of retro 80s, you know, 80s, 90s kind of um, vibe. So I, I'm not against that at all. And the fact that it's actually 36 millimeters, I would have preferred it at 39. I, I, I am one of those. Um, but I think that's a lot of fun. I know people are very upset at that. Um, but I mean, one of my favorite Daytonas that I actually have is a, is a two-tone white dial, um, you know, current running uh, Daytona. And I just like it because it just fits that like, you know, 90s 80s car kind of vibe and it looks cool and you know some of the biggest value that you can have right now is is, is in the two-tone lineup you know even with 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 rolex and i mean uh, one of those is i think retail is seventeen thousand ish and you know even the aftermarket sales are you know maybe 22 when you're looking at thirty eight thousand dollars for a steel ceramic uh, daytona yeah, uh, thirteen thousand new right yeah I, I, it just and I love, I mean, the Daytona is nice. And I obviously I'm a, you know, I'm a fan of them, but some of the, some of that's just kind of nuts. But what, what did you think? What was your, uh, you know, I felt like Rolex, it was like everyone was getting called to make their presentation at Watches and Wonders. And it's like, 
Okay, Hermes, present your novelties. Breitling, present your novelties. They called Rolex. Would you like to show what you have? And Rolex just, just said, pass. Yeah. <laughs> pass. I actually liked the Palm Dial date just. Um, oh, yeah. To, you know, eat, not wear my vegetables, but I, I thought it was kind of fun. And I, I realize it's probably as market specific as the Two Tone Explorer. I, I think the Palm Dial. Datejust 36 is definitely intended for the Middle Eastern market, just as the Two-Tone Explorer is intended for East Asia. But I love green. I love green dials. This yeah. has been my year. Like this, I'm going to remember this is the greatest year of watch novelties in history. For the first time, I've got choices. So I liked that. And, you know, the Explorer 2 was neither here nor there for me. It, it's exactly as good as it was before with a more competent movement. I think the biggest change from a style standpoint was the return of an oyster bracelet option on the GMT in steel, you know, black and blue or Pepsi. And I think that's probably the biggest change people are going to remember from this year. Yeah. And especially, you know, the, the, the oyster on the, on the Batman, you know, is, is cool and it's always looked great. And I, I, I like both the, both the, uh, the Jubilee and the oyster, but what's actually, what's really cool is seeing the oyster on the Pepsi, because that was the, you know, that was the gold model look. That was the whole reason they went to the, you know, went to Jubilee in the first place. So that actually is, is incredibly, uh, incredibly cool to me um, as being a little, you know, a little nuanced thing. But I, you're right. I, 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 that's, uh, it's really cool. I, I think if I had bought that 2014 to 2018 black dial, white gold oyster bracelet Pepsi, I would be a little bit miffed right now. But yeah. hey. You know that when you get into a precious metal Rolex as an early adopter, that's going to happen down the line. There's going to be one that looks almost the same, and it's going to be made of steel. It always happens. Yeah, and you know, I have to, I have to give a lot of credit, and I, I, thanks to you know being able to try one, uh, try one on at your at your headquarters. I, getting to try on the new, um, the new uh, white gold Submariner, uh, forty-one millimeter Submariner. That that was one that definitely kind of surprised me with that. I, I love, uh, I. I that that's that's something that I would absolutely be uh, be interested in where I didn't think I would be interested before. Um, I, I appreciated that. I'll add this too. Last year, Rolex novelties came out entirely out of sequence. This was the first year that they planned a new model year's launch without the assumption that it would be Basel World. And if you look at how light on the ground the brands were, 40 brands, normally it's hundreds between SIHH and Basel World. I'm assuming that a lot of brands are saving watches for later in the year so they can have their own week or their own month to themselves in the news cycle. And I'm actually kind of assuming that Rolex is going to do the same thing, that there will be more. And it won't happen now. It won't happen next month. But come June, August, September, and October, we might see new stuff from Rolex that they just wanted to hold back. It, it, it's exciting. I mean, nowadays, I guess we really, you know, we really never know. And it's also been interesting because, you know, watching the you know the leaks and so on and so forth. It's it's been uh, it's been fun to see what actually happens and what doesn't. And I, I know people will be you know it used to be where you know you said oh if it's if it's not a leak Rolex doesn't leak. And then like last year was like one of the first years that picture definitely came out before the you know before announcements were were there. And you're like okay wait that was that was new. This year not all of them. Some were definitely photoshopped, but at least I mean the the GMT on the on the oyster and on the um, and on the Jubilee, you know, that was, that was really, that was shown before the release. Skydweller on the Jubilee, that was also leaked before the release. The, um, I want to say the Meteorite one, the on Oyster Flex, White Gold, that was leaked before the release, even if by, you know, by a, a day or two. This is kind of interesting because now I can see, 
I could even see them as a function of strategy every once in a while, throwing this one random thing out, seeing how often or how quick it can kind of go, and then actually coming out with something. It, that would be very fun for me. That would be engaging. You know, it's funny, the, all these leaks and advanced shots. In the auto world, you know, you see the AMG SLS driving around with the Dodge Viper body four and a half years before it hits the market. You see development mules. You see convoys of test cars being photographed in Michigan if it's the Detroit 3. Like, you get a really good look at what this stuff's going to be before it hits the market. BMW was racing the, the, the M8R before the 8 Series Coupe even hit the market, before they'd even had an official press photo. You could see it at an IMSA event. But in the watch world, the leak comes out, it's like, oh my God, it feels like a Cold War clandestine operation. You assume someone was drawn and quartered after that in Geneva. So yeah, with the internet, even watch leaks are possible. It's drowned in cheese. <laughs> he was drowned in fondue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. All right, yeah. Drew, thank you so much. This has been a ball. Thank you so much, Tim. We're going to do another one of these and we're going to do it with cars next time. So okay. thanks so much. Um, let me ask you a quick question. Uh, sure. had, if you had to pick a best in show for Watches and Wonders 2021, I'm giving you the last word. What was best in show? Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, if, if, if this is no option, I am going to say the, the Vacheron Ultra Thin Perpetual Skeleton. That to me is just absolutely stunning. Awesome. That's a wow factor. All right. Time out, Tim out, Drew out. And thanks right. for logging on. Thanks, Tim.